You're going to love this. Just love it. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. 102.9 FM in w- in Palinville, New York, WLPP. And Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yep, streaming around the world, coast to coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow... Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Desi Doyen, of course, is with us as usual. Oh, and, and I'll get, actually, yeah, I know. Hold your thought there, uh, Des. I wanted to say coming up, we've, we've got some uh, overnight reports of a shakeup in the Donald Trump campaign. A shakeup in the Donald Trump campaign? What's not to shake up? So we're going to talk about that in a moment. And... Uh, the, the the fights for voting rights uh, in this country are just getting uh, just crazier and crazier as Republicans at this point seem to be getting desperater and desperater. That's not a word. OK, thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so we're going to cover all of that and more today. But, yeah, Des, I wanted to get back to you because if you had plans... To go to Las Vegas uh, this weekend, uh, that's right out, I think. At <laughs> and this why point. might that be? Well, I think uh, because once again, it happened almost the exact same time last year, as I recall. Yep. Uh, massive wildfires are shutting down the route between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. And of course, that's not the only place they're shutting it down. We have been reporting on the, uh, uh, in addition to the insane, historic, unprecedented flooding. Uh, that has now led to the rescues of, what, some 30,000 uh, uh, people down in Louisiana, yeah. last we checked. Yeah. Um, we've had these uh, fires out west in uh, Tinder Dry, California, now in the fifth year. I think fifth year? I've yes. lost track. Fifth year of a uh, absolute record drought. Millennial-level drought, some meteorologists are calling it. All of the things, Des, that you've been warning about for so many years when it comes to global warming that is, you know, not discussed in the corporate media, not discussed in the presidential campaign. 
Uh, all of these chickens continue to come home to roost, and they're still not being covered in the corporate media, at least as far as connecting the dots to climate change. Today, we've got uh, this new example. 80,000 are now ordered evacuated from massive, uncontrolled Southern California wildfire. This is right near us, by the way. We've yet to see the smoke coming over from this particular uh, fire. The winds are uh, happily, I guess, blowing the other way. But California's newest huge wildfire advanced on thousands of homes on Wednesday feeding on drought-stricken vegetation and destroying untold number of structures as it expands to nearly 47 square miles at this point. Yeah, I thought that that number could not possibly be right, but I calculated it myself from uh, the Cal Fire website. Mm -hmm. That's true. 46 square miles. This is overnight. This is like a 12 in 12 hours. Out of nowhere. CBS uh, Los Angeles is reporting that uh, this uh, fire in San Bernardino County is now 0% contained. So that's going well. Flames from what they are now dubbing the Blue Cut Fire uh, climbed the flanks of the San Gabriel Mountains toward the town of Wrightwood, where authorities say and this is a t little tiny mountain town. And this part really is right up above uh, Los Angeles. We've been to uh, Wrightwood many times. Yeah. Uh, authorities said that only half of the community's 4,500 residents have now complied with the evacuation order that was uh, given about 24 hours ago. Not good, folks. Uh, I know that area very well, and there ain't no way to get out. I mean, there's nowhere to go. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you don't get out now while the getting's good, there is nowhere to go. It is one road up and one road down, basically. Uh, and if you, and if that road gets cut off, I don't know what these folks are going to do. So I'm not sure what they're thinking by not evacuating up there in Wrightwood. In any event, officials estimated more than 34,000 homes and some 82,000 people are now under evacuation warnings. Uh, the police chief says that if you are asked to evacuate, please do so. Please evacuate. Less than 24 hours after this fire began, 60 miles east of Los Angeles, um, the fire command assembled a fleet of 10 air tankers, 15 helicopters, an army of 1,300 firefighters, many of whom were just off another wildfire that had burned for 10 days just to the east of there. Um, the blaze, they, uh, CBS notes, is also scorching parts of historic Route 66. This is that uh, that pass between L.A. and Vegas uh, has now burnt down the famous diner, the Summit Inn, which uh, anyone who takes that route between Vegas and uh, L.A. knows very well. It's a familiar site. Um, the roadhouse has now apparently been burned to the ground. It was linked, uh, CBS reports, to many legends, including one about Elvis Presley. Uh, apparently the singer stopped at the Summit Inn uh, and kicked the jukebox once he saw that it contained none of his records. That didn't last long. I'm sure they put more in. But, yes. yeah, it's, it's very sad to see this historic, neat little diner. Just It's been there for 60 years, and it's just gone. Yep. Uh, so uh, this fire, uh, one of the, the residents there said the fire moved so fast, uh, it went from, have you heard there's a fire, to mandatory evacuations before you could even take it all in. The air for miles around the blaze was filled with smoke and the sound of explosions. 
They say uh, possibly from ammunition stored in homes could be heard in the distance. A later report says that this could be police uh, ammunition. Yes, as well. there's a uh, an official truck wait, way station and California Highway Patrol mm. office at the Cajon Pass at the summit, and uh, they suspected that it might be their ammunition at the uh, at mm. the CHP office exploding. So, and this comes uh, amidst a bunch of fires all across the state, and we are not even into the peak of the uh, fire season out here in California. No. And, and of course, you know, we've talked about this before, that fire season in the United States, especially in the West, is pretty much year round now, even if it hasn't been officially designated so. And mm. with the rash of fires that we've already had this year in California alone, we are uh, literally <laughs> burning through the firefighting budget for the state and for the federal government. The Forest Service has requested Congress repeatedly, year after year after year, to increase the firefighting budget because right now they're having to transfer money from their fire prevention budget, mm-hmm. which stops these fires in advance to their firefighting budget so that they can pay these vol- these uh, uh, firefighters. Uh, so you add up the cost of this, the cost of what we're seeing down in, in Louisiana, uh, where some 40, I think it's 40,000 homes have been... Uh, have sustained some kind, some kind of damage. Of damage. Yes. Yeah, the costs are enormous. And yet, whenever we hear... Uh, discussion about climate change and what to do about it, particularly from Republicans. Oh, it's too costly. We can't afford it. We can't make the change. We can't get off of fossil fuel. That will cost us too much money. In the meantime, how many hundreds of billions are we spending uh, just right now paying the price for inaction? It's too costly not to act. Indeed. All right. In the middle of the night last night, my iPhone uh, news alerts started going crazy. There was a shakeup at the uh, Donald Trump campaign that apparently warranted breaking news alerts from CNN, The New York Times, AP and others. As The New York Times reports today, Donald J. Trump has shaken up his presidential campaign for the second time in two months, hiring a top executive from the conservative website Breitbart News and promoting a senior advisor in an effort to right his faltering campaign. Stephen Bannon, the executive chairman of Breitbart News LLC, will become the Republican campaign's chief executive. And Kellyanne Conway, a senior advisor and pollster for Mr. Trump and his running mate, Governor Mike Pence of Indiana, will become the campaign manager. Paul Manafort, the campaign chairman, will retain his title, but the staffing change hammered out on Sunday and set to be formally announced Wednesday morning was seen by some as a demotion for Mr. Manafort, according to the New York Times. Uh, So what, if anything, does this mean? And what are we to make of the uh, chief of an increasingly far right wing website who has, by the way, no political campaign experience and a longtime Fox News analyst and pollster? What are we to make of, of them taking over the campaign of the Republican Party's presidential nominee? Here to help us understand this, perhaps, is our old friend Eric Bullard. He is the senior fellow at uh, Media Matters for America, the author of Bloggers on the Bus, How the Internet Changed Politics and the Press, and Lapdogs, How the Press Rolled Over for Bush, and uh, a man who covers Fox News and uh, the Breitbart News website incredibly close. My uh, condolence for, condolences for that, Eric Bullard, but welcome <laughs> back to the broadcast. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, so uh, what are what are we to take from the placement of uh, a Breitbart News executive chair and a longtime Fox News analyst and pollster being named 
to head up Trump's campaign at this point. Pretty amazing, right? And the, and the key point, I think, one of the key points is this is someone who has no campaign experience. Yeah. So the Trump campaign, which has been hit hard for being amateurish, for having no ground game, for having no advanced team, for having poor fundraising, for having no surrogate operation, mm-hmm. they've decided what they really need at the top of the campaign is someone who's never been at the top of a campaign, <laughs> let alone a presidential campaign. So we're really, we're really seeing is kind of a right-wing media coup. Because if you take a step back, it's not just Breitbart, right? Mm-hmm. There's a New York Times report this week that Roger Ailes, disgraced former uh, chairman of Fox News, who mm-hmm. had, was thrown out uh, for sexual harassment in the wake of a sexual harassment lawsuit, mm-hmm. he is reportedly helping Trump with the uh, debate prep. Uh, Roger Stone, sort of a real far-right, mm-hmm. bottom-of-the-barrel figure in Republican politics, also has an ear with Trump. Alex Jones has been brought into the orbit as one of uh, Donald Trump's favorite outlets, mm-hmm. um, who was widely just laughed off as a, as a tinfoil conspiracist. But but he's um, not, Eric, He uh, Alex Jones is not being placed uh, on the actual campaign. You've right, got right, right, right. But what I'm saying yeah. is if you, look, if you look at where this Trump campaign is going, it is just reaching out to the mm. far, far right elements of the right-wing media. I mean, these are sites of Breitbart. I mean, the reaction today from the Weekly Standard, from National Review, from a big portion of talk radio Mm -hmm. is just complete and utter. I mean, they've already, most of them had already given up hope on the Trump campaign. There's already the civil war that's raging. And the idea that Trump is now going to bring in uh, someone from Breitbart News, which is seen even in the conservative media, the traditional conservative media, which is seen as a laughing stock uh, place for content, uh, they are completely dumbfounded and, and, and they've completely given up. And we're only in August. So the takeaway is look, Trump is, 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 you know, he wants to be surrounded by yes men and yes women. And where better to find a yes man to run your site? Then Breitbart, then run your campaign, then Breitbart News. And, and I want you to explain for those who are not familiar with Breitbart News uh, exactly what that site is. Because a lot of people, you know, don't, don't you know, bother to uh, to go to some of these sites. They don't understand. They know what Fox News is. Yeah. And so on the sort of the right wing fake news, uh, Republican yeah. propaganda spectrum, uh, where does Breitbart News fall? Give us a quick history of how it came about and what it has become over uh, recent years, as you see. Yeah, it. well, it was founded by Andrew Breitbart back uh, maybe 10 years ago. He was a very sort of charismatic, um, almost like a court gesture type figure that rose up in the conservative press, uh, timed it well with Obama's election and the, and the rise of the Tea Party. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. He liked to get on fights on Twitter. He liked to get in fights with Media Matters. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not particularly honest in terms of the, the journalism at Breitbart, uh, but it was in the realm of, you know, traditional right-wing media. You know, the Breitbart didn't, you know, the site didn't really tell the truth a lot. Uh, they kind of went out on the fringes every now in personal attacks. Uh, I would say it's evolved over that time. Uh, it's become, to me, something much, 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 much darker. Uh, it has an overwhelming racial animosity tone to it. 
Uh, it's very almost nationalistic, borderline, you know, kind of pseudo-fascist in some of in how they write about immigration and how they write about policing. They have gone completely all in with Donald Trump to the point where people might remember in the spring, um, uh, Trump's former manager shoved a Breitbart reporter, <laughs> and Breitbart took the side of Donald Trump's campaign yeah. instead of its own reporter. Uh, about half a dozen people left the site, reporters and editors, because they, they weren't going to work at a place that wouldn't even support their own reporter when she was getting harassed by the Trump campaign. So they kind of um, they cleaned up that mess and have been absolutely at the spear point, not only of defending Trump, but lashing out at his critics. They lash out at Glenn Beck. They lash out at anyone who dares to question the almighty Donald Trump. And so that's where they stand. They have been the well-known leaders, I think, in 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 the pro-Trump propaganda war. In, in one sense, is it more, uh, I guess, shocking or surprising, or at least disturbing to the uh, GOP establishment uh, that he would uh, ele- elevate someone from a Breitbart News to run the campaign? Is that even more disturbing than elevating somebody from Fox News? Setting set aside Roger Ailes and his. Uh, you know, sexual harassment uh, right, charges right. right now, but just the idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think within the Republican circles, Fox News are seen as grown-ups, right? They're men of a certain age. They're all making a ton of money. They're in the TV business, so they must be serious. I think Fox, if they had, if, if Trump had plucked someone from Fox News, I mean, again, Roger Ailes is reportedly helping mm-hmm. him with the debate uh, prep. Uh, so if they had plucked a big name from Fox News and said, come over and run our campaign, yeah, it would be weird if that person didn't have any campaign experience. But I think within the Republican establishment or the Republican, you know, uh, the conservative movement, it would be seen as weird, but okay, it's Fox. You know, they're the big boys. They know what they're doing. Uh, they kind of run a campaign every day on Fox News, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, Breitbart is just, I mean, it's, 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 totally bizarre and and again you know there's already this raging civil war within the conservative media most pundits honestly um do not support donald trump i mean that's the amazing point where we're at in a in a presidential election i would say you if you came up with a top 100 conservative pundits Mm -hmm. Uh, 60 or 70 percent do not support Trump. We've never seen anything like that. Mm. The the conservative movement has always been defined by its message discipline. They always, always get in lockstep. So for for there to be this mass defection regarding Trump is completely uh, unusual to have um, to have someone. And, And so my point is, you know, in terms of that civil war, people were already pointing to Breitbart as the problem. Mm-hmm. People like Charlie Sykes, longtime um, AM talk radio, was on MSNBC this week saying, you know, we've got Alex Jones's Infowars, we've got Matt Drudge, we've got Breitbart, just feeding people lies and falsehoods all day. They think Trump's heading for this glorious victory. Well, just and, and we've had other conservative commentators specifically point to Breitbart as this non-reality bubble that that uh, the right lives in. And so, for Trump to now go to Breitbart uh, and to get a new campaign chief for the rest of the conservative movement, it's just proof positive uh, that everyone is in the Trump campaign is completely off the rails and have no idea what they're doing. 
And this is uh, just to confirm, Eric Bowler, this the GOP establishment, uh, their figures have been pressing Donald Trump to run a more traditional campaign. Uh, So these new appointments, I'm just confirming these folks without any national experience running a presidential campaign. This would seem to be the very opposite of yes. what the GOP establishment has been calling for. Am I oh, correct? They've been, they've been begging for this mythical pivot. Anyone who, is, who watched the Trump campaign for, for two days since last summer knew mm-hmm. he wasn't capable of the, of the pivot. And yes, so they've been begging him to be more serious, to pivot. And, and this is basically his, you know, his, his middle finger to the idea of a pivot. Oh really? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go find this other person, and 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 someone from the far sort of far yeah. reaches, dark corners, um, with no experiences and no experience. But what's interesting, and and and, and the larger point is, in terms of the Trump campaign, they have they have completely locked out anyone from within the Republican establishment who knows how to run a campaign. I mean, if you look at Bush 2000, 2004. Uh, there are people in the Republican Party, Karl Rove and others, who know how to run competitive Republican campaigns. They know where the independent votes are. They know how to do, get out the vote. They know surrogate. They know how to make a Republican at least competitive. I mean, Mitt Romney was almost competitive. McCain mm-hmm. really wasn't. All of those people have been locked out. They have. I guarantee you Karl Rove could not get his phone call returned from the Trump <laughs> campaign today. Karl Rove was running the Republican Party just six or eight years ago. So the, the turmoil of the Trump campaign is a, a larger uh, problem uh, of Trump basically trying to wing his way to the White House. Mm. And this is someone who's never run a campaign in his life, it, wh- let alone a national campaign. I mean, he had a rally in Wisconsin last night. He's going to lose Wisconsin by 10 to 15 points. He had a rally in Connecticut last week. He's going to lose Connecticut by 15 or 20 points. What is he doing? What is his campaign? Well, you've got uh, this uh, Paul Manafort guy now uh, who who actually does have some political experience, some campaign experience. He had been the... Uh, I don't know what they even called him, the executive chair, or I don't know what they called him at the Trump campaign. He's still reportedly going to stay there. But what, if anything, does the New York Times report about Paul Manafort uh, and his role as a political advisor in Ukraine? They had reported a day or two ago the uh, evidence that Manafort was paid by uh, the pro-Russian leadership of Ukraine at the time. Wh- what does uh, any? What does his role? in that uh, mess have to do with the shakeup now in the campaign, as far as you can tell? And is Manafort being pushed out of the spotlight here as the formerly top uh, Trump campaign official with this Well, it certainly, it certainly appears that uh, there were reports a couple of weeks ago, you know, people from within the Trump campaign were complaining that Manafort was just calling it in. He wasn't showing up. To, look, I think Manafort tried to came, come in. Uh, tell Trump this is what you have to do. This is how we run a campaign, mm-hmm. and and Trump just ignored him. And after a month or so, Manafort basically, in terms of some of the reporting, he just gave up because he realized he was never going to train to change Trump. He was never going to be able to get this to be a professional uh, campaign. And the additional reporting today, uh, I think, in the Washington Post was was uh, you know Trump didn't. Re- Trump wants to be around people who think Trump is fantastic and think he is perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wasn't getting that from Manafort. He was getting it from Bannon. Uh, so he wanted to bring in some, you know, a cheerleader. And, you know, that's really not how you win campaigns. <laughs> Certainly 
certainly not how you win national mm. campaigns. Um, but, uh, you know, Manafort, I don't, you know, he doesn't have like this stellar track record for winning, you know, getting people elected senator and mm-hmm. congressman and things like that. He was kind of an odd figure to begin with. As you mentioned, the you know, the, the payments from Russia certainly didn't help. Uh, but it certainly appears that he is being pushed aside. And how would you like to be pushed aside by a guy who runs a dopey right-wing <laughs> website who has never run a campaign in his life? God, that's got to be humiliating. It's it's absolutely remarkable, Eric. I, I know you got to run here. Let me uh, see if I can fit in one more question before you got to go. You had mentioned Charlie Sykes, the uh, frankly the right wing uh, radio host. I would say far right wing radio host up yeah. in Wisconsin, who uh, you know gave frankly millions of dollars of airtime to, uh, to to Scott Walker and his uh, proponents uh, during that recall election up there. Even he is now saying. We have to have a reckoning when this is all over. We've created a monster, uh, and he's talking about the right-wing uh, uh, news outlets, the right-wing media machine that has, you know, discredited all of the fact-checkers like the New York Times and so forth. If you, you know, cite the New York Times as disputing something Donald Trump says, well, that's as, you know, that's as good as saying, uh, you know, Donald Trump is telling the truth in, in right-wing world. So I have some sympathy for Charlie Sykes. <laughs> Uh, and the like, because uh, they're finally beginning to get it. But um, too too little, too late at this yeah. point well, uh, for this, these this people. Well, there's going to be so many reckonings after November, and one of the reckonings is going to be people like Charlie Sykes, people like uh, Brett Stevens at the Wall Street Journal, who's been uh, feuding with Hannity over Trump. Now they're coming forward and saying, you know, the conservative movement, was, you know, is living in a bubble. It's living in this misinformation. They don't understand the truth. They're being fed all these lies. Well, yeah. Where were you two? You know, where were you two? Just for examples, when that same media, conservative media, was telling lies about death panels, was telling lies about Obama's birth certificate, was telling lies about the stimulus, was telling lies about the Clinton Foundation. You can't suddenly you know put up your hand and say oh we have a problem <laughs> just because it's destroying your own party from the inside via Donald Trump so it's a little hypocritical but the the ramifications are going to be long lasting after the election the conservative media which is now in a civil war they're just going to come together and pretend that they both both sides didn't call each other liars for the previous 9 months i don't know if they're ever going to put this they're going to, if they're ever going to put this uh, back together the, the way it used to be. I, I would I would go even farther back, by the way, Eric, to say where were you uh, during you know weapons of mass destruction oh, sure, and sure. torture and attacks yeah. on uh, gold star mothers, uh, you know, like Cindy Sheehan, which yeah. suddenly they're all upset that oh you're attacking a gold star uh, um, uh, parent. Uh, they've been doing this for almost twenty years at this point, so uh, I welcome that reckoning. Uh, consider me dubious. Uh, at this point. Eric Bollert, uh, thanks for uh, helping us to figure this out. I suspect we're going to press you even more as this madness continues through November. Always great to talk to you, my friend. Eric Bollert, uh, check out his work at MediaMatters.org. And you must, you must follow him on the Twitters. His fights between uh, Andrew Breitbart uh, and himself were legendary, and uh, his Twitter feed still is. He is at Eric Bollert on Twitter. Thank you, brother. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Good.
You know, uh, Desi Doyne, after uh, that comment a few days ago from Donald Trump about Second Amendment people, uh, in which he seemed to be suggesting as a joke or otherwise that gun proponents might be able to somehow stop Hillary Clinton, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, uh, from appointing a Supreme Court justice after she was elected, you had asked, you said... Uh, when we, I think we were off air, you said, well, how much further could this go? Maybe I said that, you know, where do we go? Where does yeah, this go from here? Yeah, if he has to here? continue to get new attention to break new ground of outrageousness, where does this go next? Where, what's his 11? Right. And, you know, the question is, and I thought at the time, oh, he'll come up with something. Don't you worry. Uh, now, with these new people, with the Breitbart News Service running the campaign, Oh, man, buckle up. I think they're going to you ain't seen nothing yet. What we're going to see over the next 80 days or so before November, uh, November 8th. Um, I just the song uh, Send in the Clowns uh, comes to my mind (laughs) for some odd reason. Uh, And the last line, don't bother. They're here. I think they are. A quick break and uh, and a quick trip back to uh, North Carolina. We've been covering them a lot lately, haven't we? And for good reason. That and more on the broadcast right ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Uh, that's Carolina-ish, I guess. Yeah, right? Sure, that's sure, it'll work. We'll go with that. Welcome back to the, welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. We have been talking a lot about North Carolina this year because it really seems like it has become sort of the epicenter uh, for the fight for voting rights and, frankly, the fight against voting rights in the country this year. As Republicans seem to be in big trouble. Uh, certainly on the presidential level, but also uh, down ballot as well in a lot of states because the top of the ticket ain't helping them, it seems like, this year. And frankly, demographics haven't been helping them for years in these United States as the country is becoming, uh, you know, less white, uh, less old, etc. Um, and so they are now desperate to uh, win at the ballot box however they can. It's no longer about issues right now. It's about who gets to vote and who doesn't get to vote. That has been uh, increasingly the fight in a lot of places, certainly in swing states like North Carolina, which went to uh, which barely went to Barack Obama in 2008, then barely went to Mitt Romney in 2012. Uh, And then when uh, North Carolina passed the most sweeping voter suppression law in in the land, frankly, after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act back in 2013, North Carolina, with a Republican majority in the state in the state legislature for the first time in like 143 years, basically for the first time since Reconstruction, Republicans took over the state legislature, took over the governor's mansion. 
saw the uh, Voting Rights Act uh, taken down by the Supreme Court and passed this huge voter suppression law um, with everything that Republicans could ever want, uh, shortening early uh, access to early voting, getting doing away with same day voter registration. Doing away with early registration, which allowed 16 and 17 year olds to register if they would be 18 by Election Day. Uh, And, of course, imposing photo ID voting restrictions at the polling place. All of those uh, provisions were recently struck down by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals which found that they were racially racially discriminatory and that that was their intent in the first place. So those laws were struck down by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals back at the uh, on July 29 is when they handed down their uh, ruling. And now North Carolina is filing a last gasp attempt with the U.S. Supreme Court to keep their racially discriminatory voter suppression law in place for the general election. They're not saying it's not discriminatory. They're just saying, hey, it's too late before the election. Don't change it now. It'll cause confusion and havoc. Uh, Ernest Canning writes at Bradblog today about North Carolina's latest attempt at the U.S. Supreme Court. Good luck with that. Uh, He describes it as a Hail Mary or perhaps a Hail Justice Roberts emergency petition. (laughs) That is, uh, he says, unlikely to succeed. All right. He breaks it down this way. As we reported in a sweeping victory for voting rights on July 29, uh, the U.S. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals struck down the massive voter suppression law described as the nation's worst since the Jim Crow era. In their stinging rebuke, the court found the statute's provisions were enacted, purposely enacted by state Republicans with racially discriminatory intent that, quote, targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. That was July 29. Uh, that was a three judge panel on the U.S. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And then just a few days later, North Carolina went and asked the full Fourth Circuit for a uh, for a stay on that uh, injunction that had been placed on that voter suppression law. In their request for that stay at the Fourth Circuit, uh, North Carolina primarily relied, as Kenning explains at Bradblog.com, on the Purcell principle. And that's something you need to you need to understand. You need to know what the Purcell principle is, because I suspect you're going to hear it a lot between now and the November 8 election. We heard it a lot back in uh, in 2012 and 2014. Basically, this is what the Supreme Court uh, has adopted, this this general idea that a, a, a changes to election laws for good or for ill should not be allowed too close to an actual election because there'll be havoc, it'll be chaos at the polling place. So even if it's a, a discriminatory law, even if the court does, you know, finds that it's discriminatory, has an, a, a full trial on on the uh, the effects of this law, finds that it was purposely put in place to be racially discriminatory, it that law should still stay in place if the court has made the decision uh, too close to Election Day to avoid chaos, to avoid confusion. It's a ridiculous principle, frankly. And we saw it in 2012 and 2014 where, you know, courts had found, yes, this law discriminates. This law could keep, uh, you know, in Texas some 600,000 voters from already registered voters from being able to cast their vote. 
But we don't want to knock that law down because, oh, it could cause chaos at the polling place. We would prefer to have 600,000 people disenfranchised by the law. That's what the Supreme Court has been doing, and they were able to do it when they had Antonin Scalia alive, and they could uh, have these five to four decisions in favor of that. In any event, that's what North Carolina did when they went to the full Fourth Circuit. And they said, hey, you guys made uh, this decision to cut down our law too late. It's in violation of the Purcell principle. You need to keep it in place until after just one. Just give us one more election just until after the November election. Well, the Fourth Circuit replied to that and they said, uh, yeah, during oral argument over this case, you actually told us, and this is a quote, that you would, quote, be able to comply with any order that was issued from uh, by this court by late July. Now, remember, the Fourth Circuit came out with their order killing this law on July 29. So the Fourth Circuit rejected North Carolina's uh, argument under the Purcell principle and said, no, you got plenty of time. You told us you could comply with our order as long as we issued it before the end of July. We issued it before the end of July. So you got to go comply with it now. North Carolina, uh, incredibly, you know, has been rejecting that, saying that, no, it's too late, even though we told you it wouldn't be too late. Now, 17 days later, after the uh, Fourth Circuit originally struck down the law, 17 days, they took more than two weeks to go to the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, and make an emergency application uh, to uh, to stay this uh, Fourth Circuit decision until after November. So good luck with that. There is now a uh, an eight person court because Republicans refused to fill the vacancy after Scalia died. And uh, they would need uh, five votes. Uh, five justices would have to come on board. Five of the current eight um, would have to essentially agree to put a stay on this uh, on this injunction. So good luck with that. But that's what North Carolina is trying to do. And in doing so, in doing so, after they said, oh, as long as you tell us by July, we'll be fine in going back to the court and saying, oh, we're not fine. It's too late. You got the, the Purcell principle in doing so. Uh, was it? Yeah. Ian Milheiser uh, over at Think Progress, he likened it to a. Um, what uh, Ernie Canning calls a classic, if informal, characterization of the word chutzpah that is often used by attorneys. Uh, they use this characterization to wit. Uh, they describe the little boy who murdered his parents and then asks the court for mercy because he was an orphan. That's kind of like what North Carolina uh, is doing here. So we'll see. We'll see what the U.S. Supreme Court says. Uh, good luck with that, though. Um, in the meantime, uh, in striking down that state law, that means that everything in North Carolina actually reverts to uh, the, the previous law, which meant that instead of limiting early voting across the entire state, for example, now it's a county-by-county county decision. Now, before the Supreme Court had struck down the Voting Rights Act, counties in North Carolina, many of them uh, protected by the Voting Rights Act, those counties would have had to get permission to make these changes to election law, to limit early voting, to shorten the early voting hours and, and locations and so forth. They'd have to get permission from the federal government in advance under the Voting Rights Act. But that is the part of the Voting Rights Act 
that the Supreme Court killed. So now it's up to the counties to decide, Okay, well, the state law, if that's knocked down, then we get to decide how many uh, early voting days there will be, how many early voting locations we get to, to decide and we don't have to go to the federal courts to do it. And that's what they're doing. And that's their right, county by county, to, to do. Uh, but what they're doing in, in the process is many of these, uh, these county boards of election are three-person county boards. And uh, because Republicans control the state, that means that Republicans also control the county boards of election, in most cases by a two-to-one majority. They can do what they want at the county level, essentially. But if it's not a unanimous decision of all three uh, members of the board, then the state board, which is also Republican, has to approve uh, those changes. And that's what they have been now trying to get away with in North Carolina, where they are absolutely where the Republicans are absolutely desperate to do anything they can to get any partisan advantage they can, even if it means making it harder for their own voters to vote. And now we've got some evidence by way of an email that was sent out uh, this was uh, uh, yesterday. This came out. Uh, North Carolina Republican Party Executive Director Dallas Woodhouse explicitly called on his party, those boards of direction, uh, b- boards of election, uh, to try to cut early voting hours because they know that's when uh, that would disproportionately disadvantage Democratic voters, specifically African-American voters. But here's what uh, the the head of the North Carolina Republican Party said in an email uh, to uh, an insider email, if you will, to Republicans. Uh, He said uh, this guy's name is Dallas Woodhouse. Democrats are mobilizing for a fight over early voting locations and times. They are filling up election board meetings and demanding changes that are friendly to Democrats and possibly voter fraud. It's got nothing to do with voter fraud, but that's that's what Republicans say. Republicans should fight with all they have to promote safe and secure voting and for rules that are fair to our side. A couple of important points, he says. County Board of Elections do not have to be unanimous in making early voting changes. Republicans can and should make party line changes to early voting. Democrats are mobilizing to fill this week's Board of Election meetings. Past experience suggests that these meetings will be loud and hostile. Our Republican board members should feel empowered to make legal changes to early voting that are supported by Republicans. We need to fully support our county board of election members as they make important decisions that follow the law and support Republican positions. Mind you, these are boards of election. They are about making sure that everyone who wants to vote can vote. And yet he's saying we need to make sure these board of elections follow Republican positions that keep voters from being able to vote. And that is what they are doing in Mecklenburg County, uh, which is, I think, the most populous uh, county in, uh, in North Carolina. It's where Charlotte is. Hundreds showed up earlier this week at a Board of Elections meeting, just as uh, the Republican Party executive director said they would. Hundreds showed up to beg and plead Mecklenburg County to please not curtail early voting. They want to cut the overall number of hours from the 2012 election. uh, By 238 hours. This is from the 2012 election. 
Uh, and uh, so we're going to have fewer. We got more voters, but we're going to have fewer hours of early voting in Mecklenburg County if these uh, if these new restrictions are allowed to stand in Mecklenburg. The Board of Elections voted in front of an overflow crowd of 150, almost all of whom wanted more hours to vote early. So everyone who showed up to give their opinion during the public uh, opinion uh, period here said, no, don't reduce early voting hours. Nonetheless, Mecklenburg became the latest county to approve the early voting plan uh, that, in fact, does uh, cut early voting hours. Before kicking off the two and a half hour meeting on Monday in Mecklenburg, the uh, the chair of the board, Mary Potter Suma, a Republican, told the crowd that, quote, she's not a fan of early voting. The more early voting sites we have, the more opportunities exist for violations. And she opened the floor for comments. Thirty three people spoke in favor of more early voting hours uh, or at least as many as there were in 2012. Only one argued for fewer. Mecklenburg GOP chair Claire Mahoney said more early voting sites and more hours make it harder for candidates, particularly those with a shoestring budget. Unclear how having more early voting makes it harder for uh, for, for candidates. Charlotte City Council member Vi Lyles, a Democrat, was among those urging the board to extend early voting. And she said, as a candidate, I want every voter to have the opportunity to vote for me, to vote for me or against me. She said. Um, so there's no reason to go below what they had in 2012 uh, in Guilford County. We talked about that a few days ago. The Republican led elections board there had also considered uh, lowering the number of, of uh, early voting hours, but they ended up putting off that plan. However, in Mecklenburg County, they approved the plan to restrict early voting by a two-to-one uh, uh, vote of that election board. And you might be wondering, gosh, why do they focus so much on on early voting well, in this here's, county? Here's a specific, uh, yeah, Ari Berman uh, notes over at The Nation that Obama carried Mecklenburg County by 22 points in 2012. So, OK, he, he, remember, we've got a Republican majority election board in a county that Obama carried by 22 points. In 2012, and 70% of African Americans back in 2012 had used early voting that year. 70% of African Americans went to vote early. They called early absentee voting in North Carolina, compared to just 48% of, wait for it, white voters. So no real surprise uh, why the Republicans are trying to do that. Early voting, as uh, WFAE notes, has become extremely popular in North Carolina. In 2008, 57 percent of ballots cast came before Election Day. In 2012, the numbers were about the same. 56 percent used early in-person voting in North Carolina. In Mecklenburg County, more than 450,000 ballots were cast in uh, in 2012. 55% of those ballots, a majority, were cast by in-person early voting. From all ballots, 47% came from Democrats, just 26 from registered Republicans, and 25% from unaffiliated voters. So this is it. This is what Republicans are left with doing. This is all they have left at this point. 
uh, voter suppression and frankly, gerrymandering, uh, which we haven't talked about in a while on the show, but we should, that will potentially, hopefully for Republicans, hope them hold the U.S. House. It has helped them take uh, uh, Republican majorities in state legislatures. Democrats actually got, I think, more than a million votes for U.S. House, uh, for U.S. House representatives uh, back in 2012, and yet the Republicans were able to hang on to the House because of the way they gerrymandered uh, the districts back in 20 uh, back in 2010. So, if you notice, there are hardly any issues, any actual issues, being discussed at this point as part of the presidential campaign. It's all about you know crazy Donald Trump and so forth. And I got to tell you, I really miss the primaries because at least we had. Very, very passionate debates, at least on the Democratic side, between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton about actual policies. That debate is now nowhere to be found. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I mean, it, and it's kind of maddening on this show, because if this were what would we call it, a normal election, <laughs> I, I don't even think it's normal anymore. But, you know, if you had a Mitt Romney running, a George W. Bush running, they might be coming out with actual policies. The Democrat would be responding to those actual policies. Look, the, the Democrats, Hillary Clinton is not even forced to respond to any of the uh, Republican positions here because, frankly, Donald Trump is not out there making the case for them because he doesn't understand them. He doesn't care about them. You know, it's about going out and, you know, calling names and scaring people or whatever, but it means that there are no actual issues being discussed. All we're discussing is the personalities of Donald Trump and of Hillary Clinton uh, on the Republican side. But that's all the Republicans have left now. I mean, it really is because their policies are wildly unpopular if you ask the American people about them. Now, that could change if they had a spokesperson out there actually, you know, making the case for them. Uh, but they don't. And the presidential race is not the only one. A, a public policy polling, PPP, last week put out a poll. Uh, Donald Trump had been leading in North Carolina, had been leading for months and months. And suddenly, as of last week, uh, Hillary Clinton is now up by one point or at least was last week. I think those uh, a newer poll might have showed her with a larger uh, uh, a larger lead. But in any event, if you say a one point lead, every single vote makes a difference. And the Republicans know that that's at the presidential level. But also all the statewide offices that are also up for grabs in North Carolina this year are also incredibly close at this essentially statistical dead heats or they had been as of last week. This is changing quickly. But in the governor's race, for example, Pat McCrory, the guy who has been pushing this voter suppression law, who has taken it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, he's running against the attorney general in North Carolina, Roy Cooper, who has said he will no longer defend this law in North Carolina since the courts found that it was purposely racially discriminatory. Roy Cooper is now just one point ahead of Governor Pat McCrory. Uh, the state's anti-LGBT law, their transgender bathroom law, that's still causing trouble for the governor, for Pat McCrory. Only 30 percent support it in the state uh, compared to 43 percent who are opposed to it, according to PPP. By 12-point margin, voters say that the... Uh, 
that uh, McCrory has handled the issue uh, poorly. It makes him uh, less likely to vote for him. And uh, and they think it's hurting North Carolina. Fifty eight percent say it's hurting North Carolina. And this is a Republican policy. So they can't run on those policies. In the other races, in the other statewide races, state treasurer, attorney general, lieutenant governor, all of those races as of last week were dead even. I mean, dead even. Same story for the uh, uh, key, uh, uh, key state Supreme Court race and a North Carolina's uh, Senate race. So the Republicans know they are in uh, trouble here. Even the, uh, the sp- when it comes to uh, supporting the U.S. Supreme Court uh, nominee, uh, Obama's nominee Merrick Garland, by a spread of 60 to 23, North Carolinians think that the U.S. Senate to do, should do their job and hold hearings on Merrick Garland. There is bipartisan agreement on that issue. So they don't talk about the issues because they're not doing well on the issues. And so right now, all they have is voter suppression. And we've been focusing on North Carolina because it is the starkest case of that. But this same fight is now and will continue to be played out between now and November 8th, between now and Election Day, because right now the election is no longer about issues. It's about what voters will actually get to vote and will their votes be counted and will they be counted in a way that uh, they can know that they have been counted accurately. That, unfortunately, is the issue now between now and November. And yes, we will be covering it on the broadcast. All right. Quick break. And when we come back, a brief tribute to one of the greats in political broadcast media. Yes, I said it. One of the greats. Stay tuned. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Issue one. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Uh, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, you may uh, be familiar with that theme. That was uh, John McLaughlin's uh, theme, the McLaughlin Group. John McLaughlin, longtime host of TV's McLaughlin Group, died at the age of 89. The show announced his death on the uh, McLaughlin Group Facebook page on Tuesday saying they lost uh, a beloved friend and mentor, Dr. John McLaughlin, uh, passed away at the age of 89. As a former Jesuit priest, teacher, pundit, and news host, John touched many lives, they write. For 34 years, the McLaughlin Group informed millions of Americans. Now he has said bye-bye for the last time. 
to rejoin his beloved dog, Oliver, in heaven. He will always be remembered, they say. Uh, He, of course, uh, created McLaughlin Group back in 1982, and he has apparently never missed a day. Wow. Uh, It was a weekly show, half-hour weekly show. The first show that he ever missed since 1982 was just this past Sunday, his first episode that he missed in 34 years as the host. HBO, uh, John Oliver's uh, Last Week Tonight on HBO did a bit on uh, on McLaughlin just a few weeks ago, kind of out of nowhere. Um, but uh, do we have that? Do we have time yeah. for that? Yeah, let's go ahead and, and play that, because if you don't know uh, McLaughlin, uh, I found him to be hilarious, frankly. Well, a few more thoughts. He is uh, from Last Week Tonight. And now, John McLaughlin angrily introduces discussion topics. Issue one, two islands, 28 pages, and one king. Issue two, Chinese bridges. Issue three, Michelle and Kata, secrets away. Civil furor. Meet me in Singapore. A problem of poop. Pujambo Obama. Wildlife woe. Give me my money. <laughs> Bye-bye, Syria. Speaker who? Lifeboat for Lula, Barack, back, Biden. Message in a tank. Cyber kleptos. I'm here to stay. Bye-bye. So, uh, yeah, you know, we lost him. Now, uh, quaintly, when uh, the McLaughlin Group came out, uh, it was regarded as uh, just over the top. It was, uh, you know, like a battle on television. It was not like the more staid uh, Washington Week in Review on, on PBS or Firing Line. Uh, it's AP describes it as having a raucous format. That largely dispensed with politicians, it instead featured journalists quizzing, talking over, and sometimes insulting each other. McLaughlin had said uh, that informing an audience could be entertaining. Quote, the acquisition of knowledge need not be like listening to the Gregorian chant. And I think I uh, I spent a lot of years watching John McLaughlin. <laughs> I, I think I've been uh, somewhat influenced by that, by that thinking, and by the idea that, you know what, you can fall asleep Watching the news hour on PBS, or you can be entertained by important news. And that line between, um, you know, keeping people entertained and going to just, you know, BS, which is what has since happened. Look, it, it, it is so quaint, frankly, what McLaughlin was doing on the McLaughlin Report, if you compare it to what you see now on cable news. The thing about McLaughlin, it was really, it was, I didn't find it was ever mean-spirited. No. Um, they, they didn't tend to lie about stuff the way we do, uh, the way we see now on or all make the cable stuff channels. Up. Make stuff up. Uh, McLaughlin told the New York Times nearly 30 years ago, he said, I do put my questions in terms of the sharpest polarities of the issue, but I don't want a preponderance of opinion over factual data. It is that factual data that has all but disappeared from the uh, from our political coverage. It seems these days, certainly in uh, in corporate cable news, John McLaughlin will be missed. Thank you uh, to my producer Desi Doyen today, to my guest Eric Bollert of Media Matters for America, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other. 
Download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. You can also drop me an email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>